scorching sun You feel the warmth of the rays And then you know you're alive And you don't have to be afraid Of anything cause you know You know the truth and the truth The truth is love, yes it is Doesn't what they said to you Or anything that you learn From a book or from the news It's not like that cause it's a thing It is something that you do Do, 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 do Welcome to the baseline, everyone. Ivor Cummins is a voice of clarity and reason. When logic was suspended and common sense was taken off the table almost four years ago, Ivor was producing content that was undermining the dominant narrative, yet he was difficult to censor because his presentations were completely factual. He produced the very good documentary, the COVID Chronicles. He's a technical manager and a biochemical engineer who specializes in complex problem solving. It is with total delight that I welcome to the baseline Ivor Cummins. Ivor, how are you today, my friend? Oh, I'm fine, thanks. I'm uh, delighted to be here, too. Oh, my goodness. I have to tell you, Ivor, I mean, for you to be here is like a life highlight for me. I'm so excited to have you as a guest. I can't even put it into words. I mean, I'm so excited for every guest. So, you know, I love this show. I love being here with our community and, and the information that we share. But this episode does hold a special place in my heart for different reasons, because you discovered a Substack article that I wrote and made reference to it. You shared it, which was just like a monumental event for me because I'm a huge fan of yours. And when the COVID insanity had taken over the world, your videos were so empowering. I mean, I can't thank you enough for the great work you did during that period and continue to do. Yeah, oh, not at all, not at all. I, I mean, I always mention to, to people uh, in interviews, you know, I have five children. I'm focused on the future for them. And I always, my whole career, I, I supported facts and science. And I hated when people obfuscated or twisted the truth for political ends. So between the two things, I'm not going to stop pretty much. I mean, it's a labor of love, if you will. Well, yeah, I'm a father as well. I have two children. And, um, yeah, I'm in the struggle for the exact same reason. And, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's very serious what's going on here. I think humanity really needs to choose what path it's going to go on. There's a, there's a major struggle, it seems, here for the future of humanity. And I wanted to start our discussion today in terms of the link you sent me this morning. And I'd seen some stuff floating around about it on Twitter. I have to admit I have not researched it extensively. But I'm really concerned about this news coming out of France that they are discussing criminal penalties for people who question mrna or other effective medical treatments what did you uh what did you think about that when you saw that and, and what have you discovered about that uh declaration or, or this new legal precedent that's coming out of france yeah it was to be honest it was a shocker even for me it's hard to shock me after the last four years and i'm sure you but I was surprised at the extent of it and that they'd actually pulled this off so soon. I thought they'd build up hate speech laws and build up more and more kind of uh, corrupt legal constructs to 
came in, the population. But yeah, France went ahead and it's 45,000 euro or $50,000 fines and three years in prison threatened for simply persuading another person not to take a certain medication that, as you mentioned, is under current uh, medical guidance or medical science would agree with it. And um, it's astonishing, really. A lot of people are joking. Well, you know, at a certain point, thalidomide would be under absolute medical guidance for women who are pregnant, who had, uh, you know, various pains and aches. And the guy who won the Nobel Prize in 1949 for the kind of ice pick uh, frontal lobe disassociation, you know, that crazy, crazy procedure, he got a Nobel Prize. So that was perfectly good uh, in 1949. And here we are, the French government now is saying, even though science is always changing, and we've seen so many medical debacles over the past 20 years, you know, they're actually saying, if you dissuade someone from taking a medication in good faith, because of data you have, doesn't matter, uh, three years in jail. So a massive chilling effect as well, even if they don't really use this much, there's a chilling effect. Everyone goes around fearful of this insane law. And... Just one other quick point on this. A lot of people were saying, oh, hold on, we saw articles in the news that it was not passed, it was thrown out. But that was the journalists who were there for the first session on the 14th. In the second session, the government came back and somehow managed to shoehorn it in. So it is passed. Uh, crazy, though, the, that seems. Wow. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, right? It's like... People will say, well, why are you still talking about COVID? Well, because <laughs> the World War III is still underway, unfortunately. Um, you know, major moves are being made, and they're so radically against the people's interests. It really makes you wonder, what is frankly going on here? Now, I'll, I'll say, Ivor, myself, despite maybe some people's perception of me as a conspiracy theorist, and I actually don't have a problem with conspiracy theorists, to be honest. I mean, go ahead, theorize all you like about any number of things is my attitude. But I actually am someone who considers myself a rationalist, first of all. I mean, I'm a person who, as much as I'm interested in various far-out ideas, and I'll entertain some pretty far-out stuff, I like to organize my worldview based on what we consider to be incontrovertible facts in general, the history that we all can agree upon in general. But when COVID happened, if you were really alert to all these strange things that were happening, it had to shift your worldview a little bit. It had to make you really curious as to what was going on because I don't recall ever seeing something that was so coordinated on a global scale. I mean, we had basically the United States agreeing with its, you know, I hate to use the term, but its enemies on paper, you know, it, its rivals, let's say, rather than enemies, the, the uh, you know, the Chinese, the Russians, they were all on board for, for the COVID agenda. How do you perceive the power structure? I mean, this is a huge question. I'm sorry for that, but I kind of like to start big and then go work our way backwards into details. How has this just affected your worldview? What are some of your takeaways in terms of the massiveness of the COVID operation that was global, unlike anything, I think, in history? Yeah, it, it is a huge question, but, but actually I've spoken on this uh, on many occasions. So basically, in April 2020, I was coming out with 
some pretty good analysis and explaining that the mortality impact of COVID was actually not outside the envelope of a bad or severe flu. And I also was showing Diamond Princess data and I interviewed the Nobel Prize winner, Professor Michael Levitt, saying the same thing. So I was thinking it's a swine flu rerun, you know, the 2009 debacle, and it was in the British Medical Journal and it was in Forbes magazine. So they took down the article in October 2020, but a 2010 article in Forbes said how the WHO faked a pandemic. So everyone knew there was complete corruption with pharma and WHO, and swine flu as a result uh, happened, but it turned out to be absolute nonsense, and it was a debacle. So I thought, well, they're having another swine flu. Ten years have passed. They have more control of the media, so they'll have more success. So they're going to exploit this this virus, even though it's really just like a bad flu. And the problem was, by May or June, I was beginning to be sent uh, articles and published material on the World Economic Forum and the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. And I began to realize, whoa, this is much bigger than just big pharma corrupting the WHO. And I actually resisted, like the rationalist you are, I did not want to believe in a huge orchestrated campaign involving much more than big pharma. I kind of wanted it to be a bigger swine flu, worst case. But unfortunately, a red letter day for me, as we say in Ireland, in the summer of 2020, when the hospitals were empty across Europe and there was no COVID action, I told the COVID doctors group I was in, this is our time, according to Sung Tzu or the Art of War, always use the terrain when you have the terrain. And I said, we now until October, November of 2020, later this year, there will be no COVID action and there'll be not much stuff to propagandize on. So now is the time to convince politicians and leaders to take a deep breath and realize this is nonsense. But what did they do? They brought in mandatory masks with prison sentences and fines in the law all over Europe within a couple of weeks in the summer, and they enforced them. And then I realized there is no way on this planet that that can happen without a huge orchestrated campaign from the World Bank and the Bank of International Settlements all the way to the WHO and the UN, but way bigger than the WHO. The WHO were not even lobbying for mandatory masks. And it was clear as crystal to me that that was specifically brought in to keep a feeling of pandemia in the air because they knew there was nothing happening. They realized that it was totally seasonal, like other coronaviruses, and that they had four or five months of wasteland and the people would move on and you would not really be able to get them back in October, November. So I knew the reason they did it And the power of being able to orchestrate that was so huge, I knew beyond question, okay, this is vastly bigger than I was hoping. Right. Well, piggybacking right off of what you just said, you kind of lead me right into what I wanted to ask you about, which is this whole concept of seasonality and um, a great thing that I wasn't familiar with until I came across your work. I'm not sure if I'm saying it quite correctly, but uh, the Gombart's Curve. And this, this, you know, this notion initially, I believe, was being presented that it was just, again, a disease X sort of event where this uh, 
disease came in just sideswiping us out of nowhere and was just sort of killing people in this in unpredictable way. But your work was showing, no, it, it, it all fits right within uh, predictable seasonal changes, right? Could you get into some of that? Because I think um, that's something that hasn't been covered enough in the critique of everything that happened. And I really give you credit for, I think you're at the forefront of that conversation in terms of the information I've come across. So could you get into seasonality and the Gombarts curve for us? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the Gompers curve was Michael Levitt actually originally brought that up and said that all of the manifestations of the COVID waves in China or New York, everywhere, it followed a Gompers function. And it's just basically instead of a normal distribution where it goes right up and comes down again, just like it went up, it goes right up uh, naturally based on natural dynamics and then comes down in a long tail. And it just showed that it was independent of lockdowns, masks, or any measures taken or not taken. It always followed the same natural curve, i.e. it was a coronavirus, and you could not really affect its trajectory. So that was the Gompertz curve. And, and of course, we had fact-checkers coming out saying it was not Gompertz. Every time a fact comes out, the fact-checkers come out to try and deny the fact, because they're part of the media organizations that are owned by the superstructure of globalism, basically, no conspiracy theory. But the seasonality was something I really hopped on, because I read Dr. Hope Simpson, an English doctor who started the first influenza transmission laboratory to investigate transmission of influenza, coronavirus is the same, in the 1930s. And after 50 years studying the enigma of influenza transmission, he wrote a book and it's amazing. And it's all about the seasonality and how influenza can explode like mushrooms in the field in completely different areas of the world simultaneously on the same latitude, even before air travel. It's very complex. But seasonality was a huge thing. And this SARS-CoV-2 was exhibiting the exact same phenomena he talked about at length. And one, just for the audience, really simple facts I was putting out there was a published paper that showed Brazil had SARS-CoV-2 in the human sewage in November 2019. 2019. It was in the human sewage. In other words, it was all over the place, the phenomenon. And in Italy, it was found in blood samples from cancer patient study that were held on ice. And it was actually back in October 2019. It was in the blood of these cancer patients, loads of them. So even though it was in the population in 2019 in Italy and Brazil, Italy blew up seasonally in February, March, because it's northern European latitude, as per Hope Simpson. And Brazil had a long, slow rise in the northern European summer out in May, June. So the seasonality completely blew away, whether it was even in the population or not. You know, it was powerfully seasonal. And the really interesting thing is the seasonality, proven seasonality, showed that the lockdowns did nothing. It was one of many things that showed the lockdowns did absolutely nothing. But the really interesting thing was in June 2020, just when it was becoming clear as crystal that it was seasonal, the WHO came out in Reuters with an official bulletin and said, COVID is not seasonal. It is one big, long wave. 
And that was 100% a political bullet. It completely conflicted with reality and the facts. And it was put out politically because they were clearly getting concerned that seasonality was making the whole thing look ridiculous and the lockdowns and the measures. So, I mean, that's how bad it was. Right. I mean, I, I always found it strange that so many people assumed that this was something we could control. You know, I mean, it just... It's the virome. It's it's trillions of viruses. It's not something we per se can control, right? It's like we can't just stop it from raining. We can't just stop people from getting colds. We can't just, you know, stop the you know, the sun and the moon. I mean, it's like what makes you think that whoever the president is can implement policies that would stop a virus? I just thought that was just so presumptuous on our part and so human to think that we're in control when we're frankly not in control. Um, which actually leads me into the next thing I wanted to ask you about. Now, uh, let me set the stage here a little bit to say that while I was listening to your outstanding videos and coming across some other interesting people um, whose work I gravitated towards, the entire time I was watching this ticker, I guess you could call it, it it was uh, exactly like one that Johns Hopkins was producing. It was something called... um, what was it called? Uh, Roy Labs. Roy, not our world and data, but it was that sort of thing. So Roy Lab stats. I don't know who Roy Lab is, but it said that somewhere in the corner in small print or somewhere. It said Roy Lab stats, but it was a global ticker showing the number of coronavirus, COVID nineteen uh, cases, number of people recovered, and number of deaths in every country in the world. It it suddenly became the number one channel on my television system called the Coronavirus Information Channel. And I would just leave it on. My wife was like, turn this off. Why do you have this on all the time? I was just fascinated by it. Um, And one thing, it just struck me, it was just very strange in terms of if you looked at certain global numbers, like for example, Tanzania is a place that I visited when I was 15 years old. Um, Tanzania, to my amazement, I didn't realize it until all of this. Wait, they have a population of 58.3 million last time I checked. It might be over 60 million by now. And on this global ticker, they didn't even have 50 COVID deaths up into a certain point. I think they had like 12, and then suddenly it was like, whoa, it's up to 50. How did it get from 12 to 50 out of 60 million people? Now, Medical intervention? Are they awaiting agency vaccine? And of course, people will then argue, they'll say, well, you know, well, they don't keep great statistics in places like that. There were more cases than, than were recorded. But then I start saying, well, now who's the conspiracy theorist here? Are you saying there are mass graves being covered up? There's this huge mortality event that's not being reported anywhere? Like, they have cell phones in Tanzania. They have a, you know, telecommunications infrastructure. They have the internet. Um... You know, I was hearing reports from the ground in Tanzania where someone actually said, hey, come to Tanzania and have a great time. We're not worried about Convid over here. There's about to be a big music festival, et cetera, et cetera. And I could also just point to a long list of countries that um, had single-digit and double-digit death tolls two and three years into this so-called pandemic, which, again, people will say, oh, well, those places are isolated But the problem with that argument is, well, they had thousands of cases. So basically the virus had every chance it it needed to wipe out the human race, according to this global 
uh, tracker because, you know, there was hundreds of cases, thousands of cases. Well, you know, a lot of countries, again, single-digit death toll, double-digit death toll. So my question to you is, and you used a great term that I'll add to my COVID paradigm. I was listening to an interview with you earlier, um, the term transmission dynamics. I would love for you to discuss some of what you know about the transmission dynamics of this COVID virus, or how I like to put it is the question of how the virus spread, but also did not spread because there were so many cases. And this is something that I found very puzzling. And I know other people found this puzzling, which is someone would have COVID or test positive for COVID in their household or apartment, and no one else in the apartment even got COVID. You know, the, the person was treated. They, they sat down and ate dinner with the rest of the family, only one bathroom in the house, and they had COVID. So, again, it's just very strange. You just ask, well, how did the virus spread from China and all the way around the world, but then doesn't even spread in the apartment? So sorry to big, you know, put a big pile of stuff out there for you. But just generally, could you share um, what are your thoughts about this discussion around transmission dynamics, or as I like to call it, how the virus spread, yet did not spread. Yeah, for sure. Well, Hope Simpson was a genius, to be quite honest. And clearly, even though he's the doctor, he had this engineering ability for problem solving, which I just happened to be blessed with by birth. But he went through a whole book about that, so it's very hard to summarize. But I'll just say that one key thing he pointed out was that influenza and coronavirus the same does not have a serial interval now i'll simplify this a serial interval is just if you have a direct transmission model like they tried to tell us covid was someone comes in the house and 4.2 days later the serial interval for measles uh, a bunch of people will get sick maybe some won't because they're immune or whatever they got great immune systems but whoever's going to get sick will all get sick together because they directly caught it, okay? That's the serial interval. He had data and showed clearly influenza does not have a serial interval. If someone goes into a house with influenza, maybe four days later someone would catch it, maybe eight days later someone else will, maybe 16 days later. There's no clear transmission model. Now, it's very complex, and he came up with a fantastic way or a hypothesis as to why this is, but it involved very complex stuff. Like most viruses have an ability to lie dormant, and he had a whole theory around dormancy that certain people in the population were prone to carry. And then at certain times a year, based on seasonality and vitamin D levels and many other factors, the virus would kind of bloom like daffodils, and the people who had it dormant would become transmissive. And there were lots of other things, very complicated, but he was just fitting a theory to all the observed facts and reality. It's the opposite of what the WHO do. But I give an example of that serial interval. My daughter in, I think, February 2022, we were trying to catch it because you could get a COVID cert, <laughs> which would allow you to do things. So I have seven in my family. My daughter caught it. We immediately got a test, absolutely, PCR positive, okay then. And we had her down in our worst day, down watching a movie in our small little room, which is a television and a fire, and we all sat with her. We had popcorn and 
she was not feeling very well, but we brought her. You know, we tried to catch it in a room. No, no restrictions. Tiny room. We could not catch it. So what actually happened was my son, around 10 or 11 days later, got it. We got him a cert. Around three weeks later, I got, got a cert. And some of the others had so few symptoms six and seven and eight weeks later. But they did feel something was different. It was hard to even sense. And they got a positive. So our whole family got it over 10 or 11 weeks and beautifully proving Hope Simpson. And I'll just add a couple other tidbits in. An enclosed order of nuns in Italy, there was a news article I kept, they got it and their food was being fed into them in trays. You know, these enclosed orders that don't speak to anyone. And also, there were multiple instances where men at sea, crews of ships, got it after double PCR testing negative. The whole crew, six or eight weeks later, they had a COVID breakout, verified afterwards as COVID. And there's even papers which talk about these viruses in earth particles transmitting through, I think, the troposphere. And they can move around the earth in these dust storm type phenomena. So all of what I just said, and so much more about the beautiful complex science of transmission, not a single thing was allowed to be talked about because the system needed a simple direct transmission model to scare the hell out of the ordinary people who sadly, of course, have no knowledge of of any of this science. And that's how propagandists work. They get it down to a simple message that appeals to people's lack of scientific knowledge. And then they use that simple message to get them to go under their beds, wear masks, or God help us, take injections of brand new novel experimental medications. You know, it's just nuts, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. It's uh it's it's so scary because, you know, it's one of the scariest things for me, Ivor. I mean, there's a lot of things that are scary about the whole thing. But it's like, um, you know, I, I just have this notion that human the human race is as stupid as we are in general, as, as just absurd as we are as a race. I thought we just had a basic survival instinct about us. And it feels like a lot of people have just sort of unplugged from basic survival instincts. And it's so scary to see people not being alarmed by alarming things. You know, people who, you know, in some cases have a very sort of arrogant attitude about their understanding of things. But then you see them not being alerted to things that should alert the mind that something is really off. Um, I want to talk with you now, Ivor, about... Uh, and you mentioned testing. You're kind of leading me step by step into everything I really want to discuss with you. And honestly, um, we won't have enough time for me to discuss everything I'd love to discuss with you. I wish we, this was like in the form of a seminar again where I could talk with you for like a few hours. But we're already at the halfway mark of the program. But I want to get into um, the discussion of the PCR test. Now, give us your take on PCR in terms of it. Is it not just... Uh, you know, maybe not not the greatest test in the world, or do we say do we go all the way there and say PCR fraud? And my issue with this whole PCR thing, I mean, it seems to me 
from my non-expert opinion that we were using the PCR test in precisely the way its inventor said, do not use this test, Dr. Kerry Mullis. And then also, I just find it very confusing in terms of COVID being the disease symptoms of the SARS-2 virus and SARS being severe acute respiratory syndrome and then saying large numbers of people are testing positive and are asymptomatic with severe acute respiratory syndrome. So something's got to give here. It's not severe and acute, obviously. Yeah. It's asymptomatic. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you great. Um, there might be a little little lag or a little delay that I noticed oh, from the very I, beginning. But, yeah, so I, give, I it, got, give me your take. I, about... Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, sorry, I hit a bandwidth dead zone there. Apologies to everyone. I'm in the car, but they happen rarely. But I think I got the question, the whole PCR and its use. Yeah, and, and, and just basically, are we saying not the greatest test in the world, or are we going all the way there and saying PCR fraud, fraudulent use of a medical test? Yeah. Yeah, well, in my mind and in millions of people around the world who, who know about this, yeah, it, it's absolutely fraudulent because it was used as a tool to create hysteria and to create pandemia. And if you took away the PCR test, they often said, uh, we would have had no pandemic. There would have been busier hospitals than normal seasonally, maybe, in some places not, and there could be no pandemic. So it was the root of the pandemic. And Drosten, the guy who put together the PCR for SARS-CoV-2. He got the sequence, I think, from China, and he had the PCR test, and they got a paper published on it that the WHO immediately blew out around the world, said it has to be used, and the paper was, I think, in around 30 hours, was peer-reviewed and published, and some of the people involved in the test were on the peer review panel. So that was total uh, corruption, no question. Uh, so the PCR test, it can pick up viral fragments, fragments. it can pick up a previous infection up to a month before, uh, it can just get a false positive that it just picks up noise in the universe. And the cycle number should be kept down around 20 cycles, because every time you do a cycle, you double whatever is there. And this gets exponential, it goes up to hundreds of billions times magnification. So you're meant to only use 20 or 25 cycles of magnification, but they were using up to 45, which basically was making something out of nothing. So I could go on. There are all these problems with the PCR, but the real key thing is it, a case of any disease for all of history was someone with significant or severe symptoms in hospital. That's a case of right. COVID. Right. But they changed it that a case was anyone under what I described. Someone who had it a month ago, someone who had it and had no transmission, was not infectious, no symptoms. That was the vast majority of the positive PCRs were people who had no relevance to any pandemic. But they used those people. And when the case numbers dropped and people, the population was beginning to say, oh, I'm not as interested anymore in COVID, what did they do? they racked up the test regime. In Ireland, they moved it up to six times more testing when, you know, there wasn't much going on. And then they get more cases and the media could say, oh, the cases are up. But they never told you, we've upped our testing by a factor of five and the cases are up by a factor of three. I mean, that's fraud. 
by any man's standard or woman's standard, that's fraud. Right. I, I totally agree, and I'm glad you made that point about changing the definition of a medical case, one of many definitions that was changed to accommodate this event, including changing the definition of a vaccine, which literally the definition changed from something that um, creates some degree of immunity to something that activates an immuno response. So if you had your body has any response, okay, you, you've, you've been vaccinated. And um, I want to get into that discussion because I actually haven't heard many of your opinions. I mean, I, I have a sense of your opinion, but um, I would love to see you do one of your outstanding videos covering this issue of excess mortality because I don't think I've seen you do uh, direct coverage of that issue. And we have this weird thing which has been discussed on this program just a couple weeks ago. We had Dr. William Mackis from Canada on the program. And um, there's this issue of excess death being observed across the Western world, in the United States, in Canada, in any country where these shots were administered vastly. And um, I was interested, actually, I did see uh, some of the people who are pushing back have said, and I don't know how to make heads or tails of a lot of this stuff, but um, someone's saying, well, in Bulgaria, they had very low vaccine uptake, and they're experiencing the highest excess mortality. So I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's an aberration. Um, I know there's all sorts of confounding variables when it comes to these things. But have you kept up with this discussion of excess mortality? And in your estimation, how harmful do you think these gene-based injections are? Because I'm getting the sense that they're extremely harmful in terms of just what I've observed in my everyday life. I unfortunately know many people who have definitely been injected, who have new medical problems, and you know, some of them make the correlation between the injection and their new medical problems. Some people don't seem to make the correlation at all. But um, it seems to me that there's various metrics, even just in the United States, we have the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, the, the VAERS system. We have another thing called the vSafe data, which was forced to be um, available um, because of a court order, which is so insane. Again, why do we need a court order to make data pertaining to public health available to the public? Why is that something that would be kept in secret whatsoever? But we have vSafe, we have VAERS, we have multiple documentaries of people just testifying firsthand about their injuries. There's over a thousand peer-reviewed papers. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that these shots are harming people, and some are remaining uh, just completely unfazed by all of this negative data. How harmful are these shots in your estimation, and what do you make of the excess mortality discussion? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I'd have to say the cost-benefit or risk-reward of these novel medications is, from everything I've seen, horrifically negative. So I will say that. In other words, the benefits, Professor Norman Fenton in the UK, who has a team who works on confounded statistics to actually find true evidence, he has done beautiful analyses and presentations showing that the death or avoiding death benefit of these medications has been massively exaggerated. And he shows a lot of this statistical trickery. And likewise, from Irish data I analyzed, the shift in the number of ICU or hospitalizations relating to this 
seems non-existent from basic kind of analysis and analytics. So I think the benefits are kind of largely just propaganda. But the harms, I think one of the safer things on the harms, there's two harms. There's morbidity or causing autoimmune myocarditis, clots, maybe heart attacks. And then there's mortality. You actually die because of it. I'm comfortable enough to make a guess that the morbidity or severe side reactions is as documented in the Pfizer trial follow-up data. And it's official data. And it looks like one in around 800, which is very high. It doesn't sound high. And you could easily hide one in 800 severe reactions because, you know, one in 800 people, that's easy to hide. It's almost anecdotal. Uh, so I think a lot of morbidity uh, or, or harms, but I think the mortality is not very big. Uh, so very low percentages of actual death will be very easy to hide. And I suspect, and this is my feeling, at the end of our COVID Chronicles movie, I, I gave a monologue, my prediction for the future. And I essentially said, there's a freight train of excess mortality coming, which will be much bigger than the so-called COVID PCR positive deaths. It's going to be big and it's going to be real. All the cancer screenings missed, the mass uh, kind of psychological torture of the people over a flu, right? That's going to cause a lot of depression, anxiety, the, 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 the taking away of proper hospital care, the disruption of our society, and I could go on all day, cardiac care. We're going to have a massive freight train of excess mortality. And I didn't even mention vaccines then because it was before that. Right. So I think, I think there's a, a, a huge amount is that. And in there are vaccine deaths, but it's very hard to separate them. So the reason I haven't been too vocal, I keep pushing out uh, information about the excess deaths but I'm not comfortable attributing them totally or in large parts of the vaccine because I'm just uncomfortable. I don't have the data. I don't have the proof. And, and that's a challenge. Now, Sweden, I also am aware that Sweden got vaccinated in a big way and they don't really have much excess mortality. So that kind of factoid might suggest, well, Sweden didn't go insane and they didn't shut their hospital system, and they didn't do all the insane COVID stuff. So the fact that they don't much excess mortality hints that all the crazy measures are maybe the bigger driver, because they did get vaccinated around 70%, like most other European countries. But then other people say, well, they were on a declining mortality trend, and if it wasn't for that over the past few years, they would be showing it. But these... These are, I always stick to what I'm comfortable. I can kind of prove with data. And this one has evaded me. I don't feel comfortable really putting the finger on percentages from vaccine, percentages from all the other crazy stuff. And that's why I kind of pull punches. But, but I could say the negative effects of the vaccine in the population versus the positive, the negative is, I would guess, vastly bigger. Because I think the benefits are illusory, right? And the negatives are even in the Pfizer paper, one in 800 with a severe life-changing side effect. 
is huge. Like a medication with way lower uh, bad side effects than that would be immediately taken off the market normally. Oh, absolutely. And there's so many aspects to it. Um, you know, a friend of mine, his son went on a camping trip with a bunch of fellows and he was uh, the only unvaccinated person, quote unquote, you know, unvaccinated person out of 10 campers. And someone brought COVID along with them and everyone got COVID apparently, like they started feeling a little under the weather, most of them, and they figured something was sort of transmitted between the group. They got tested and um, everyone tested positive for COVID. And uh, the unvaccinated son of my friend just fared better than all the vaccinated people. Everyone else was kind of down and out for like a week, whereas the unvaccinated guy, the one guy out of 10, was just, you know, basically back to normal in, in two days, more or less. Two days of feeling mildly under the weather and then fine. And it was the vaccinated people who were really wiped out for, you know, a week or more. And I've seen a lot of that. Um, and, you know, I've, my mother, I mentioned on this program, she tested positive at one point. She was taking care of her husband who uh, had a pretty severe case, didn't get hospitalized, but was sick as a dog. And being around him coughing and being very sick, she developed a mild cough, but wasn't feverish, wasn't feeling weak, just basically one symptom, mild cough. She went to get tested. She tested positive. And the very next day, she said, well, you know, it's funny. I, I feel great, feel maybe better than I felt in a long time, ironically, the day after I tested positive for COVID. But my mother is, you know, of the age where, um, you know, if she had taken the vaccine and had the exact same immuno response, they would have said, your life was saved by the vaccine. Meanwhile, she's unvaccinated, and it was exactly the outcome you would dream of. You tested positive, mild symptoms, even though you're almost 80 years old. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, but another thing that I find so strange, Ivor, is once you've gotten one thing wrong, why do people assume that's the only thing that you got wrong? And actually, you know, once you've gotten a bunch of things wrong, why do we continue uh, – to give you credit as someone or, or an entity, you know, meaning the, the health authorities in this case, why would we give you credit at, at, at all at this point? Because, you know, you made these declarations. You said, Joe Biden, our president, said you're not going to get COVID if you get these vaccinations. And then all the breakthrough cases, and we knew that was completely untrue. And they said, oh, it's a symptom-reducing vaccine. And so many people have claimed, it's un uncanny how many people have claimed they never said it would stop transmission. Well, then what was the basis of the mandates, first of all? And they sure as hell did say it would stop transmission repeatedly. There's, you know, 10-minute video compilations of mainstream figures in news and the president himself saying it stops transmission. So, I mean, talk about Stockholm Syndrome. And talk about, um, you know, defending. I mean, I just ask people, what is compelling you to defend an ineffective product? I just don't get that. You know, my analogy for it is, uh, again, the, the basketball team that had high expectations going to the season and they underperform terribly but are carrying on as though they're champions of the league when they didn't even make the playoffs. You know, they're the laughing stock of the league beating them their, their chests like champions. Um, at what point is there any humility about the failure of these products? So um, we've had on this program, Ivor, the great uh, Dr. Merrill Nass, 
And I give her credit. She's at the forefront of keeping an eye on the WHO, the World Health Organization, who you've mentioned a couple of times here. Um, it's rather serious, this notion of contracts being signed behind our backs that grant all sorts of authority to this non-governmental organization and in some cases, you know, granting emergency powers that will supersede constitutions and this type of thing. What's your take on the danger of the WHO and, and some of the power moves they seem to be making and, and of course, not receiving adequate publicity for, for the behind the scenes moves being made and contracts being signed and so on. I know you've covered that a little bit. Give us a, a little update about what we should be concerned about in regard to the World Health Organization. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's one of the most sinister and dangerous things uh, among a few others that is happening in the world in the next year or two. And it's coming up fast. By May, the countries that sign off they only have, I think, a shortened 12 months or something to change their mind or to question anything. And before you know it, it could be in. And the powers are massive. So I met Dr. Nass, actually, for the first time in Dublin, Ireland, uh, last week. Outstanding. They come to the Ar- yeah. They come to Ireland, herself, Andrew Bridgen, the Member of Parliament from the UK, great guy, and Tess Laurie and Dr. Kat Lindley. Uh, we had an Irish guy, Dr. Billy Ralph, was fantastic and uh, a few more and they got an hour in the irish parliament but of course the politicians generally didn't come and they were just going through the dangers of this crazy legislation so the who was two horses and if one of them falls they'll still get through what they want both do the same thing nearly they have the world pandemic treaty and they have the world health regulations revisions and essentially, to give an idea, uh, Dr. Nass summarized it beautifully in a couple of minutes. I'll try and do similar. Uh, they want all countries to be stipulated to actually be tracking for new pathogens, to work in laboratories and get the code for them, the genetic code, and to put it up in the WHO database or on the Internet where hackers can get it, was her point. Actually, they want them to become part of the pandemic industry that gave us COVID. And the other thing was they put in the word shall, which is obligatory. You shall do this 168 times in the new revision. And they took out all instances of the words non-binding. And still they are going around lying and saying this does not affect sovereignty. Uh, you know, it, it's completely crazy. It's just, it's hard to believe when you read it that they're even, even pushing it this far. And it's essentially a power grab to have full powers next time, because last time they did not quite have full powers to drive COVID nonsense. They want full powers next time. Another thing they put in is it can be any public health emergency, not just viruses and stuff. It could be a climate-related emergency, you know, and they put a lot of other stuff in. So you could have climate lockdown because a climate event happens that's zero to do with CO2, but they could just say, oh, it is. It's global warming, and we need to now do all of these measures because this is clearly an emergency. And they can declare a public health emergency of international concern, P-H-E-I-C, pronounced fake. <laughs> <laughs> so I, think they're, I think they're laughing at us. They're just bathing and in irony at this point. <laughs> it's comical, but they did so well during COVID. I think they're... 
they, they're, they're just feeling that they can get away with anything now uh, with their ownership of the media and the ownership of the public politicians. But Tedros himself, the head of the WHO, I think he's still listed as a terrorist in some countries right. because of his, yeah. And he was put in by China and Gates. He alone can declare it. It doesn't even need to be the rest of the WHO kind of sinister figures who hold the most power in that organization. And we got to remember, too, that some people think, well, Gates is a big contributor. He's second in the list of contributors to WHO. But he is also effectively Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and they right. contribute a ton of money. Mm. So Gates and Gavi together are the biggest by far contributors. And the other thing I always point out to people is, yeah, the governments contribute a lot of money as well. However, the governments have no interest in the WHO or what it does. They just give money. So the only voting rights and influential money at all in the WHO is Bill Gates and Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, which is Big Pharma and Gates with a vaccine agenda. So, like, it couldn't be more corrupt. And like I mentioned at the start, in 2009 and 10, the British Medical Journal, Forbes, and many other outlets were allowed cover how the WHO faked a pandemic. So to your point earlier, we caught them faking a pandemic in 2009, and all the media around the world covered it. And here they are again with their pandemic industry nonsense. And the problem is people don't know. You and I know, a few million people know here and there, but because they own the media, I can tell you, no media around the world is covering this unless they cover it briefly as a positive thing. So that's the problem, no one knows. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're being kept in ignorance intentionally, clearly. Um, we have a caller on the line. We have Alex from Brooklyn. We're nearing the end of our program. Uh, how are you today, Alex? You're on the line with Ivor Cummins. Uh, is that me? Yeah. Is that you, Alex? Can you speak yeah, up? Yeah. Speak directly into your phone. I can't hear you very well. Can you hear me? Oh, you sound really far away like you're at the end of a tunnel. Yeah, talk right into the phone if you could. Oh, okay, it's kind of rough, man. The audio's sounding kind of rough. Yeah, sorry, did we drop that? Yeah, yeah, sorry. The, the audio's a little rough. you got to be prepared um, when you get on the air. 888-874-4888. 888-874-4888. We only have a couple minutes, um, unfortunately. And, uh, yeah, that was that was a, a little bit of a rough one. But, yeah, guys, I actually point out to people, this is not a podcast per se. It's distributed in podcast format, but this is a radio show. This is rough and tumble live radio. So we get little things like that, which, um, you know, hey, we're not CNN. We're not trying to do this overly polished presentation. We just have a a straight up conversation about what's going on. And as I tell you guys all the time, I don't claim to be an expert in anything. I'm just trying to figure out what the heck is going on. I'm a literate person. I'm a family man. And that's it. So if anyone claims that I claim something, it's not true. I didn't claim anything. I just claim I'm an electric bass player. I'm a father. And uh, I do host the baseline every week. And um, I think we have Alex from Brooklyn back on the line. I hope it's better this time. Can you hear me, Alex? 
Yeah, I can hear you fine. Oh, now now you're you're in good order. So yeah, give us um, uh, your input quickly. We're running out of time. How are you today, and, and what do you have to say? Good. Maxine Van, Van uh, Mandates. I was in going to Ramapo back in 2000, and they would intentionally, the professors, which I think were pretty much mostly union, when you wanted to protest about the vaccine mandates where you were eligible to, if you did want to get vaccinated as a student living on campus, you didn't have to, but then they started to change that. Hmm. But they intentionally would put the protests exactly when class what time is, and they said you can't use a, a protest as a way of an excused absence to get out of class. So the problem is, is that the people that run the rules and make the laws have too much say over the average person that either going to college, which a lot of vaccines are in colleges and universities. Yep. Even in Texas, uh, our guest Mary Talley Bowden is saying people in Texas. In 2010. And they told me, if you're, if you're living on campus, you have to have a specific vaccine. If you don't, your registration will be, you'll be deregistered. So the trouble is school systems, community colleges, on-campus housing, you have to be vaccinated to be a student. And if you don't, now they say there's no religious exemption. They make so many rules that you can't better yourself, supposedly, in society if you go to college. And, and if you want to better yourself according to their position by getting a college degree, you have to be vaccinated. Even during clinical studies, uh, I participated in many clinical studies at, at, at a very large Pennsylvania school. If you didn't have the COVID vaccine, you weren't allowed to participate in a clinical study. And a lot of these clinical studies are read over the radio. Gary talks about a lot of them. But the trouble is you have to do vaccinated in a clinical study. There's so many rules that they have around vaccines that the average person doesn't have the time or even if they had the time, they might not have the money to hire a lawyer to avoid this 10, 15 years ago. Because right now, it's everywhere. The, you want to do anything, they got you. No one says anything. No one protests. There's a small percent of people that do. Maybe 2% of the U.S. population protests yeah. on a daily basis. And the majority of people just sit by and do nothing. Yeah, it's definitely a might-makes-right situation. You can't expect 2% of the U.S. population to do all the work, right? So what are you supposed to do? Yeah, well, thank you, Alex. We're, we're kind of out of time, and, and uh, that was some great input there. Ivor, what do you have to say about just the general question of mandates? Because to me, a lot of the time they've used that as an argument. Well, we've always mandated stuff. And my response to that was, yeah, you know, looking back, I think that was wrong. I think that was the beginning of the slippery slope that's now turned into a water park where we're just slipping and a sliding all over the place. We're, we're past the threshold of the, the slippery slope. What do you think about the, the comments of Alex right there? Yeah, I absolutely agree with Alex. I mean, for me, the mandate, if they threw out this nonsense vaccine, and even if they use propaganda to persuade kind of silly people to take it, I kind of say, well, caveat emptor, but the mandates were criminality. And they were frank criminality for a disease that in Ireland, under 25, to take that demographic that was mentioned, college people, there was around one PCR positive death, I think, in 300,000 people. 
and that person, of course, they didn't give the detail, but would have had some profound medical condition. Right. So for a zero risk, you're mandated. Right. That's it's insane. insane. It's insane. And I, it's, it's insane and criminal, and we know where it comes from. That's the thing. No conspiracy theory. We know where it comes from. It comes from UN, WEF, Gavi, Rockefeller Foundation, decades ago, set this in motion. And the thing is, it should be in the constitution of all countries, but the founding fathers didn't realize what would come in 100 years. Yeah. Unless something is like bubonic plague, where you're talking multi-digit you know, death rates, you know, like half a society is either very sick or dying. Only then can it even be discussed I agree. to mandate a medication. Well said. Discussed. Right, but exactly. But it, it can be debated, discussed. but not, not allowed. But the, you, you are allowed to debate it in Congress if every second person around you is sick and dying. If you have an absolute crisis. Yeah. And you have bloody good data to show that your medication is dramatically effective. Yeah. That's it. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Ivor. It, our hour is up, and um, it's just been a total honor to have you on these airwaves. The archive will be uploaded on Monday. I'll send you the link as soon as it's available. And I hope we could do a Twitter space together sometime, Ivor. I've been having some uh, good experiences connecting with you know medical freedom people all around the world through Twitter spaces. We had a phenomenal one last night with Dr. Leonard Horowitz, who was a previous guest on this program. So I hope we could do that at some point. And uh, yeah, I wanted to make a great point. Actually, you know, do you know the attorney Aaron Siri? Um, Who's, who's oh yeah right so so Aaron Siri made a great point he said the chainsaw industry for example doesn't claim that their product is safe and they manage the liability factor of their industry why is it that vaccines that claim that they're safe need liability protection right it's like yeah. chainsaws don't Perfect. have liability protection but vaccines that are safe do doesn't make any sense well thank you so much my friend everyone please Support this program. Please subscribe to my Substack. Go buy a song. Um, Love's the Highest Truth is the uh, theme song of this show. It actually is a very clean recording. It comes in kind of distorted on this program for some reason, but it's clean. So uh, when you buy it, it's, it's a nice, clean audio production. But thank you, Ivor Cummins. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Peace and love to the PRN family. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much. I'm sorry about my audio. No, you were good, Ivor. You were great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye now.